Thank you for tuning in. This is another episode that is just packed with great information and insight, and also one you're likely going to want to listen to more than once and do so with a notepad at hand. Bob Kelleher is an internationally known pioneer and expert in employee engagement and is a longtime AEC industry insider. In this episode, we talk about Bob's unconventional path to becoming the acclaimed expert he is today, the definition of employee engagement and why it's so foundational to business success, why we need to invest in employee engagement in both the good and the hard times, why employee engagement is not an HR function, how to make engagement measurable, and the necessity of engagement surveys, and more importantly, what to do with the results. We talk about the top reasons people quit, how to get 10 times more resumes, and the biggest drivers for employee engagement. We also talk about why leaders and managers are increasingly disengaged themselves and why that's so terrifying. And we talk about how to get others, particularly leaders, to become champions of employee engagement, even if its benefits have not been initially intuitive. Finally, we spend time talking about how HR has evolved over the past decade from a focus on compensation and benefits to now one of culture and wellness and how HR professionals can continue to become more of an essential business partner. This episode is a great way to start off the new year and actually kicks off a series of episodes we have on tap that focus on employee attraction, development, and retention. And Bob's great Boston accent made me feel like I was back home. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Bob Kelleher, author, speaker, and founder of both the Employee Engagement Group and the AEC HR Summit. And we'll be discussing employee engagement and some of the latest trends in AEC HR. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great that you're here. I'm really excited about this uh, episode and this discussion we'll have. But before we begin, can you share a bit about yourself, how you got to where you are career-wise, and what you do at the Employee Engagement Group? Yeah, um, Peter, I would love to paint a linear path uh, and kind of let you know that I'm sitting here today based on a, a career business plan, but uh, in many ways, it's been uh, somewhat serendipitous, right? Uh, I started off as an elementary school teacher, um, was teaching, uh, got caught up in a uh, tax cutting measure in the state of Massachusetts where all young teachers lost their job. Um, floundered a bit for a couple of years um, until I answered a, an ad uh, from the old sanitary engineering firm Metcalf and Eddie looking for a personnel rep, college relations. So I applied for that position, um, got hired uh, by my mentor, um, uh, AEC HR icon, Ed Burns, and uh, started off doing uh, college recruiting at every engineering school in the country. Um, and um, leverage my job as a personnel rep uh, until 
uh, I eventually got promoted into corporate employment manager. Today, they would probably call that talent acquisition uh, manager. Back then, it was uh, more on the employment side. Um, ultimately, became director of HR at Metcalfinetti. Um, got recruited away by an environmental consulting company called ENSR, E-N-S-R, which stood for Environmental Services. Uh, ENSR, I was uh, there from um, 93 to 2005, and that really was the sweet spot, Peter, for, for employee engagement. Uh, it was right around that year 2000 in which we started focusing on um, engagement as the foundation of our business strategy. Uh, and back then, we didn't really know what it meant. We probably thought it was more employee satisfaction-ish. Um, but to let you know how early we were, uh, I, I obtained employeeengagement.com as my personal webpage back around that era. And it was just sitting out there. If you Googled employee engagement in 2000, you got about 200 hits. If you Google employee engagement today, you get 14.6 million hits. So we were, we were early adopters. And... And uh, it's funny, uh, we didn't really know what we were doing. We had task teams, uh, we, we had trial and error. And although I've written uh, uh, five books, uh, I like to joke that the book that I, I, I haven't written would be the longest and that would be the mistakes we made trying to put in a culture of engagement. But over our window really from 2000 to 2005 was when we were, um, we had a management ownership change uh, where I was part of a leadership team that uh, partnered with a private equity firm to buy ENSA from our German parent. And that really was um, uh, the tipping point. Uh, and, and that was right around the year 2000. They were big advocates of me, big advocates of engagement. And over a five-year window, Peter, we, by, by leveraging engagement, we grew the firm from 800 employees to 3,000. Uh, we went from 100% um, domestic to 60-40 domestic international split. We went from average in profitability to best in class on the uh, Zofnis data. We were up in the way in the upper right quadrant. Uh, we were best in class in profit, best in class, class on growth, uh, low industry uh, voluntary turnover. Um, we, we, we truly became a case study. Um, and when I say we truly became a case study, a Harvard Business School came in and did a Harvard case study. Uh, um, so we became a um, pretty remarkable success story. And again, um, based on a foundation of engagement, that, that was the platform. Um, and it really was what led to my first book. But in 2005, before I wrote a book, um, the private equity firm um, came in one day and said, hey, you're, you're hitting every milestone. Uh, and what that means in our field is uh, it, it's, it's time. Uh, and if you know private equity, it's like being put into a foster family. It's temporary. Even if, if both sides love each other, it's temporary. So in 2005, they came to us and told us that AECOM was interested. We had a 10-person ownership team. I was, I was one of the 10. We voted nine to one to join AECOM. I was the holdout. Uh, I didn't, I didn't think, um, um, an engineering culture in a consulting culture would be a fit. Um, so I, I almost left in 2005, but AECOM to their credit, they sat down with me and, and said, um, if you're so concerned about your culture stay and help preserve it and actually help us. So from 2005 to 2007, I worked with AECOM's 28 global operating companies, uh, uh, Asia, um, 
um, South America, uh, throughout Europe, uh, throughout the Middle East, um, in which we put in a foundation of engagement. And, and at that time, Peter, I had no desire to be a consultant, but I actually enjoyed working with new leadership teams and, you know, and, and helping them. So unbeknownst to AECOM, they were giving birth to a consultant. So around 2007, um, oh, but during that window, I also got promoted to chief operations officer for ENSA, which, which in and of itself is not much, but if you are a human resources person in this industry, this meaning AEC, it's highly unusual to be given the reins to run the company. So to have 3,000 engineers and scientists reporting up to me, to me, is not so much a validation of me. To me, it's a validation of uh, having engagement as the foundation of a business strategy. So um, that was, that was kind of cool. So when AECOM made a decision to go public, um, they, uh, I like to say it was an involuntary draft. They brought me in to be chief HR officer for the parent. I was on Wall Street when we rang in the bell uh, to be a publicly traded company. Uh, I did that for a while and I realized being head of HR for a 50,000 employee company um, was, was difficult for someone like me who's kind of an action junkie. I like doing work, not leading others to do work. So my HR team was 450 people, gives you some idea of the size. And a company that size becomes more government-like. Um, uh, some of my best friends still work there. It's a great firm, legendary firm. But I, I decided in 2009 to to follow what everyone told me I should do, which is to write a book on engagement. So I uh, gave four months notice, left in January of 2009, wrote 10 steps of engagement, uh, louder than words. It became a bestseller, started speaking on the book. Uh, people started asking me to work with um, their leadership teams uh, and that really formed the formation of um, the employee engagement group. Um, that led to book two, three, four, five, in, in 2010, I, I, I had a dream to have a consortium of HR people getting together, and that led to the idea of the HR Summit. So the HR Summit uh, uh, was launched in 2010, and I've been hosting it ever since. And it went from a humble gathering of 30 people in Newport Beach, California, to uh, over 200 people in Nashville last year, and we're trending even higher for the HR Summit coming up. Uh, in Denver. So it keeps my fingers in the AEC space, um, which still continues to be about 40% of my business. But 60% today, uh, Peter would be, uh, would be healthcare, would be uh, software, technology. And I think the benefit there is I'm able to bring uh, other industry best practices into the AEC space, um, which has been um, really a benefit. So I, um, I view myself as the luckiest man alive for being able to do what I love doing in an industry that uh, continues to employ the best people um, that I've ever worked with, which is the AEC industry. Right. I don't know whether you want to hear, but that's no, it. No, I, I tell you, I mean, I, 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 there's so much to unpack there. And, and I want to say, you know, so I heard of you, I first heard of you in 1993 because we missed each other at Metcalf and Eddie by a month. And I remember people saying, oh, Bob Kelleher, Bob, he just left. He went to answer. And so I, you know, so way back then I've heard, and then over, over the years, I've become a huge fan of your books and your approach. And it sort of, it culminated a little bit, well, semi-culminated with, I went to the 
AEC HR Summit last year in Nashville. We got to meet personally for the first time. And that, that still remains one of the best conferences I've been to. So, and then since that time, we've been able to talk multiple times. So I'm, there's a lot to unpack and you could keep talking and make this podcast great. So, but, you know, as far as, you know, big picture. So employee engagement continues to be such a big thing as it's went from 200 hits to whatever, 14,000 hits. It's still such a big deal. How- 14 million. 14 million, <laughs> right, okay. How, how do you define it? I mean, yeah, I, you know, I, I often will start off by telling people what it isn't. So engagement is not satisfaction. And that's a mistake that we made in 2000 in which we were kind of focusing on satisfy is, you know, doing things for our employees, giving our employees things. Uh, and then 2001 happened and we got caught up in the uh, post 9-11 uh, slowness. You know, people, people all remember the 2008-2009 recession, but people forget that we had a pretty big hiccup in this industry in 2001. Um, and we had a 10% reduction in force. And I recall losing tremendous momentum on the engagement side. And we had to kind of take a step back and really, really make it um, a part of a culture of high performance. So engagement had to be linked with high performance. And we actually redefined it. You know, we just like the word engagement between two partners. Um, we had to say engagement is between two parties. It's between the employee and the organization, right? Um, and the employees have to help the business be successful because we don't want to have a layoff. Like, you know, we have to win. And we, as the employer, we have to make sure the employees are successful. We have to make sure they, they, they reach their potential. So it, it really is two parties coming together with a joint commitment towards a high performing business model. So I'm trying to help you be successful and you're trying to help me as the employee be successful. And when you do that really well, Peter, we've, we've seen that the output is magic. The output is this thing called discretionary effort. Employees are giving above and beyond, not because they have to, but because they want to, because they're in such a healthy, healthy partnership um, with the organization or with the boss, because you could substitute the organization for the boss. But it really is that, that, that intersection of two parties coming together, looking to have the other party be successful. And, and is it different in any other industry? No, uh, I, would, I would say it transcends industries, blue collar, white collar, transcends cultures. I was in Beijing this past year uh, giving, uh, giving a talk and people in Beijing want to be recognized too, you know. Uh, people in, in Milan, Italy, where I did a workshop um, this past year, you know, they want to be recognized. Someone who's 25, they want to be recognized. Um, um, I am not 25 anymore, but I, I still want to be recognized, right? So the, the elements of engagement transcend levels, industry, um, cultures, age. Now, there are some unique nuances, right? You know, your 22-year-old wants to be communicated in a slightly different way than your, than your 62-year-old. So you have to understand those nuances and you have to kind of flex uh, as you're looking to engage, but it really, it really comes down to Peter. Are you building a relationship? Or are you building a culture in which your employees believe that you care about the well-being of them, not the well-being of them as employees, but the well-being of them as people? 
And so that, is that the recognition that you, you've recognized me as an individual, my individual comp contribution? Yeah, it, um, yeah, uh, both on contributions and me as a person. So, you know, you recognize that my son's pitching in a championship baseball game Thursday afternoon and, and you're making sure that I'm going to be at that game um, because you're my boss and you care about me as a person, not just as an employee. And as I sit there, attend that game, guess what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, wow, Pete's a really good guy. I'm, I'm going to give him back in kind. Uh, so the next time you need someone to work on a proposal for the weekend, guess what? I'm, I'm that person because you've given to me. I'm, I'm, I'm now going to give to you. It's sort of like a, it's sort of like a balanced scale, right? The, the employees will always write that balanced scale. They bring it to equilibrium. So if you, if you give to the employee, they give back. Conversely, if you take away from an employee, if you ding them, if you, if you say no, that they can't, you know, go to that game to watch their son pitch the championship game because they have to work on a client deliverable, then they're going to ding you back at some point in time. You'll, you may never know it, but it'll be there. So do you see that as the, the, the establishment and the nurturing of, of relationships? Do you see that as the evolution of HR versus, hey, we get some great benefits for our people? Oh, yeah, I, I think. I mean, not the evolution of HR, but the evolution specifically of employee engagement. Yeah, well, you know, in some ways, you know, they go hand in hand. And, and I've seen the evolution from personnel to HR. Uh, and I think the more HR people can get rid of, you know, um, being considered the administrative manager and be considered the business partnership uh, of the leadership team. And the more I can see the leadership team owning engagement, um, so I gave a talk last week to a large global company called um, the Public Consulting Group. So it's a billable hour environment that does a lot of work with nonprofits. Uh, wonderful business model. And talking to their leadership team and their CEO was sitting, you know, five feet from me. And I had 150 people. And I said, the first thing you all have to realize is, you know, Toby, who, who, who is the head of HR, I said, Toby does not own employee engagement. Uh, you all own employee engagement, right? You know, this is a business driver for the same reason Toby doesn't own quality. She doesn't own customer satisfaction, right? Uh, she doesn't own profit. Uh, engagement is no different. It is a significant business strategic initiative, and it's got to be owned by the senior members of the team. Absolutely. So is that, is that what holds organizations back ultimately? They, they, they don't necessarily see employee engagement. They, they see it as an HR function, not a business strategy leadership yeah. function? You know, increasingly, especially in a booming economy like this, uh, people, people all understand it because it, you know, the birding platform is we can't find people or, or we're losing people. And when you have that uh, component of engagement, um, metrics uh, going down, meaning, you know, it's impacting the bottom line, everybody gets engagement. Um, where it becomes difficult, Peter, is when the economy changes. Um, then a lot of leadership teams who, who are not enlightened, they view engagement like a dimmer switch. So if you now have more people than you have clients, uh, and everyone's focusing on finding more clients, and you have a reduction in force, and a lot of people shut the light switch off of engagement. And I always say it's a dimmer switch. Perhaps you have to, you have to tweak it a bit because you no longer have the investment dollars to, to fund some things, but you can shut it off. In fact, I would argue during tough times, you need to be focused 
more on, on engagement than even during the good times. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I would agree with that. Just like you can't, you know, it, it's looking at our investment in our people as an, our expense of our people as an investment versus an expense, just like we have expense in business development. No, we have an investment in business development. Yeah. And when times get tough, it's like you want to double down on those investments versus see them as a cost saying, you know what, we're not going to market much because our profits are low. Yeah. We're not going to invest in our talent because, well, our profits are lower. Well, who, who's serving the clients? Who, who is creating the innovation? So, I mean, I see it as not necessarily something you can cut back on in the good times and the bad times because it's, if it's not clients that are driving our business, it's the people serving the clients that are driving our business. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's intuitive for people like you and I. Um, often it's not as intuitive for a high uh, left brain analytical minds, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's easy to look at a balance sheet. It's easy to look at billable hours. It's easy to look at, um, you know, your capital expenditures, right? Because it's, it, it's there in black and white where engagement principles um, um, are more, uh, are more nebulous, right? So, you know, engagement is a measurable metric uh, you know, I joke, it, it represents what you should do, not necessarily what you must do. So during challenging days, we tend to shut off the things that we should do and we just focus on things we must do. And, you know, and this is true uh, with a lot of organizations that uh, perhaps are publicly traded companies, right? You know, you know, they're looking at quarterly earnings. They're not necessarily looking at your five-year strategic succession planning uh, uh, programs. So, you know, to me, a generational ownership company in this industry uh, has always been my favorite ownership model because it, by definition, it's a longer term strategy so that people are always looking at it downstream, right? How do we have a long term sustainable business? And then I think they're more likely to embrace a sustainable engagement model. Right. And in the short term, you can spend down your relationships, so to speak. But if you don't reinvest in those relationships, you're just not going to have engagement. And then that maybe those that sort of after the fact dings that yep. people might have, hey, when the economy comes back, like I'm going somewhere else or yep. I'm going to look yep. somewhere else, which really cuts away at both engagement on an individual and probably culture because of employee turnover down the line. Yep. So I, I, I want, so, I, well, before I want to switch into talking about some of the Gallup research that's done and the, the influence of leaders and supervisors, but is there with a, with a leader, particularly in the AEC space, which is, you know, it's very technical, very left brain. How, what are one or two things that an HR professional or principals who just intuitively get the people part of our business and want to sort of bring it to the board, bring it to the CEO who might be just not inclined to I me. Mean, what are some tips to sort of bring up the fact that this is a significant investment we need to make to have this outcome called employee engagement? Yeah, because, because you're dealing with analytical minds, right? The vast majority of CEOs are left brain, um, especially in the AEC industry, which is, you know, a highly analytical quantitative industry, right? So I always tell the HR practitioner, um, learn the business or the business. Like you have to speak business terms. You have to make a business case. Why is engagement important? And it's not just because, you know, we want to make people happy. You know, happy can be a nice byproduct, but that, I mean, that's not the goal. You know, 
how do you engage your employees to help make the business successful? So the more business metrics you can, you can introduce, um, the more you'll, you'll have buy-in from those who are analytically focused. And the business metrics can be, you know, a voluntary turnover of key staff. It can be, you know, days outstanding to fill an open requisition. It can be looking at glassdoor.com and your, your rating is 2.8. And, and because of that, it's impacting your ability to hire. Uh, you can look at uh, engagement of, of business units. Um, you know, I'm a big engagement survey person. It's a keep out of our business. You know, to me, any organization that isn't doing engagement surveys, that's like going to the doctor for your annual physical and not doing blood work, right? So how do you know what your baseline is? Uh, and you can break it down by profit centers. And usually there's a correlation between engagement and underperforming businesses. So if you look at your Chicago profit center and it's not doing well and you do an engagement survey, you generally will see a correlation between low engagement results. So, you know, the more you can bring metrics and make a business case that we need to do this because it's a, it's a business necessity. This isn't a nice to have, um, you know, this is, um, a business metric that we have to measure and manage it no different than we're managing cost. Well, that's, I, I was, we'll continue down that vein of employee engagement surveys. How, what's the minimum frequency that you think engagement surveys should be used? Yeah. Um, no more than yearly. Uh, it's funny. There are some, there are some niche firms out there that have leveraged technology to have monthly pulse surveys. Uh, Peter, I think it's the most ridiculous thing that I've, 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 I've heard about in a long time, just because technology can, can, can make it quicker to do surveys or more frequent. It doesn't mean it's a good idea, right? You know, for the same reason, you're not going into your doctor and having them do blood work every single month, right? Because you're looking for trends. That's what you're looking for. You're not looking for little nuances. And we're seeing a big shift away from these pulse surveys back towards annual or even semi-annual. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm actually a big fan of 18 months, even though I'm in the survey business and it's more profitable for my business to have you do surveys once a year. By the time you do a survey, analyze the results, have a company-wide task team, um, sh share micro reports with profit centers and departments, have them come together with committees and teams to highlight on some things that you're going to change. By the time you do that and put in actions that are noticeable for employees, you're looking at 12 months just to do it well. And to see some noticeable traction, there's gonna be a window of time in which you can measure um, uh, the survey, analyzing the results, uh, agreeing on what to do and measuring what it is you've done. Uh, so, you know, any, any firm out there that tries to tell you to do quarterly or twice a year. Uh, to me, that's just a money grab. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I've, I've heard different and been involved with survey. Like if there's, there's the, the quarterly maybe pulse check-in to look at the annual data and be able to, you know, depending on the industry or the organization. But I think by and large, most people I've talked to said the monthly, it's just too much. Um, but but that some amount of consistency to be able to full first establish the baseline and then consistency that works and the time it takes, I think, you know, some firms are leveraging the technology to have the time it takes to be really reduced once you've sort of developed the system for how you disseminate information. So, I mean, but it's definitely, I think one of the messages is do it, get the data, 
um, and then revisit the data. Um, what do you think if someone does, you know, is convinced, hey, let's do, let's do an annual employee engagement survey and they do that survey, they, they go through the process. What are some of the mistakes firms make when they have survey data? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the first mistake and the biggest mistake is, is they do nothing. Um, and I always, I always tell clients, do not do a survey unless you are 100% committed to doing something with it. Because the last thing you want to do with your employees is to ask them what they think and then ignore them. Now you've lost credibility. Uh, if you ever decide to, an to do another survey, your participation rate will be low. You've introduced cynicism with your employee ranks. So before you do anything, you have to make sure that, okay, I am going to hire a personal fitness trainer and, and I'm doing that because I am going to lose weight. I am committed, right? So it's, it's, it's no different than... Uh, embarking on a survey. The second thing, uh, in some ways, it's the opposite of what I just said. The second mistake companies make is they try to do everything. So, you know, when you do a survey, there's an investment, everyone's involved, the leadership team is getting a debrief. So this afternoon, I'm, 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 I'm doing a big debrief for the board of directors, right? So everyone's going to be on board. Uh, everyone's going to be focused on it. There's going to be a lot of time, attention, commitment, enthusiasm. And Ironically, um, they get too enthused and, you know, they try to, um, you know, they try to bubble wrap a bus <laughs> and I always say temper your enthusiasm, born from good intentions and, you know, look to do two, three, four things extraordinarily well, even if it shows that you need to do 12 things. Because I have been a practitioner, Peter. I know what happens when you go back to work and the first hiccup on billability or the first new major um, national win with a key account that has all hands on deck that I understand that you're competing with a lot of other business priorities, right? So I'm a big fan of under deliver. I mean, under promise over deliver. And if you come out with, we're going to do these 27 things, I know from experience, you won't do them. And then you'll lose steam, you'll lose momentum, you'll stop communicating because you're embarrassed because nothing's getting done. And then the employees will sit back and, and, and ask, whatever happened to that survey? Do three or four things extraordinarily well, nail it on the execution and communicate. And when I say communicate, communicate every single month from the time you launch your survey to the time you do a new survey. Yeah, well, well said, I agree 100% as far as execution and, and prioritizing and picking one, two, three things to sort of move forward on, get the momentum and then move forward while engage, you know, engaging and communicating along the way. So we, we have this situation where year after year after year, Gallup reports that in the US, you know, Two-thirds of, of um, employees are disengaged, you know, somewhere from, what, 30 to 35% of employees are actually engaged in their work. But that 70% of the variance of employee engagement is someone's direct supervisor. How do, do you see that play out in organizations that you work with? Not only do I see it play out in the organizations I, I work with, um, but it's highlighted as the number one reason why people quit in every study I've ever seen. So, you know, the boss, right? Um, we tend to do a lousy job, Peter, on staff selection. We do a, an amazing job on putting the right people on proposals to win new work. 
we do a horrific job when it comes time to select who should be managing the team. We tend to take an individual contributor, perhaps who's a good, someone who's a good engineer, and we put the engineer who's a great client steward, a great billable hour uh, track record, and we put that person in charge of five engineers. Do we ever evaluate if the person has competencies to be a manager of people? To me, it really goes back to the selection. Are we, are we selecting the right people? Are we hiring the right people to manage people? And once we do select them, are we developing them? Are we measuring their success as leaders of people? Or are we measuring their success for their own billability or their bookings? You know, how are we, how are we determining that Michael is a, is a good manager of people? How do, how do we do better? Is it, you know, a different assessments, not like yeah. behavioral assessments that, you know, as, as part of your, you know, not only do you have to go through this checklist of things that, you know, transition from technical prowess to project management or leadership, but, but we, we want you to go through this assessment behavioral test. Yeah, I'm, you know, it, it's funny. I'm not a huge fan of bringing in all different, um, you know, external assessments for, for hiring uh, um, because if you have a lousy brand, you're only going to have one candidate. So what are you going to, you know, do a big assessment to try to rule out your only candidate? You know, so to me, the key is quality of candidates. So if you're hiring from the outside, if I am um, company ABC and I'm on the Fortune 100 best place to work and I'm an AEC industry firm, right? I'm getting 10 times more resume than my competitors. That's, that's quantitative based on research out of University of Colorado. So if I'm getting 10 times more resumes, then I can now do a much better job evaluating the quality of the candidates. I can ask behavioral-based interview questions. I can ask questions to determine um, does John Smith have empathy? Because empathy is the biggest driver of engagement when it comes down to the boss, right? Well, if you have one candidate, um, you're seeing if you can financially afford to hire that person because you have no other candidates. So we end, up, we end up hiring in some ways based on crisis rather than proactive hiring the best fit. And it's more pronounced in 2019, 2020 because None of us can find people, right? Um, so we're growing as an industry. At the same time, we have turnover. So we're trying to grow 10%. Our turnover is 15%. That means we have to replace 25% of our workforce. Um, you know, you should be hiring no less than five people per opening. Um, but there's a, there's a shortage. So if, if your brand is not a desired brand, to me, you're going to continue to hire the wrong people to manage people because it's a numbers game. What about internal? What about selecting people who are internal, sort of promoting up the ranks? Is, is there a way that you see that, hey, firms do this, it's better. It's better at identifying or training. Like maybe yeah, it's I'm, like, a big hey, fan, I'm a big fan of 360 assessments. See what people are saying. See what employees, coworkers, project teams are saying. So before I ask Peter to be a manager of five people, I know what people are already saying about you. I, I have insight. I have intelligence that tells me that, you know, Peter's very empathetic. He's very collaborative. Um, Peter is caring. Um, Peter holds people accountable. Believe it or not, accountability is a big engagement driver. So I, I'm now armed with some data before I say we think Peter's the right one. 
But what we normally do in the AEC industry, we look at 10-year, or we look at individual metrics to determine who should be managing people. And the metrics are billability, um, cost overruns, uh, day sales outstanding, net and or gross sales. So we look at you know, what their metrics are, and if they're a really good individual contributor, they must be really good to manage people. Right, right. And, and that, that, that is, I mean, people want to aspire maybe to learn how to manage teams and then manage divisions and organizations. And, and there's, a, there's a process. We can learn that. We just have to understand where we are and where we need to go and, and build that training in. So the, there is this one other stat out there with the Gallup work that has, you know, so 70% of the variance of employee engagement is someone's manager, but two thirds of managers are not engaged themselves. So not only are the sort of the general employees, but the, but the managers are. Do you see any re- specific reason why managers themselves are disengaged? And, and does that scare you that the ones who are responsible for employee engagement are not engaged themselves? Yeah, yeah, it terrifies me um, because the studies also show that if I'm a manager and I'm disengaged, my employees are three times more likely to be disengaged. Uh, and we see this when we do surveys uh, Peter, I can, um, because I've, I've looked at um, hundreds of thousands of engagement survey data points now, I can quickly determine, you know, just like the doctor who looks at the blood work, right? I can quickly see, haha, you know, this person perhaps, you know, has diabetes just based on looking at blood work. I can quickly look at a data point and say, haha, this, uh, this is the problem. Your supervisors are less engaged than the employees they're managing. So when we see that, that's a major sign uh, to us that don't worry about engaging your employees, worry about engaging your supervisors, right? Or, or the worst metric of all, when we see the leadership team is the least engaged. I mean, that's, that's toxic. When we see that you know, the 20 person leadership team are the least engaged people in the organization, I'll, I'll tell those clients, forget about engaging your employees right now. You have you know, bigger fish to fry. Um, your leadership team's disengaged. It's mm-hmm. dysfunctional. And I, I see that, I mean, particularly in my work with burnout prevention, uh, because I have experience in that, that, that leadership teams will, will admit to me, leaders in particular and senior managers, that they're burned out and that is the cause of my disengagement. I mean, do you see that or hear that? Because it's, it's the whole subject of burnout prevention is becoming so much less taboo now. So people are talking about it. But do, do you hear and see that? Or do you think there's other reasons that are leading to leaders and managers being disengaged? Yeah, a few things. I, 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 think, I think what often happens, we put someone in a role of management, but we don't take away their individual metric goals. So, you know, I'm a project manager, I'm a civil engineer, I went to college to be a civil engineer, I like civil engineering. Uh, now you're asking me to manage five people, but my booking goals, my billability goals haven't changed. So now you're asking me to uh, be responsible for people. And now I'm competing. I'm actually competing for, for where I spend my time. But yet, I kind of like being a project manager doing what I went to college for. And this people stuff, I really don't know what I'm doing anyways. Um, so they'll be okay. And let me, let me focus on where the leadership seems to want me to spend t- time, which is where they're measuring. So if, if your metrics don't change and you're measuring the manager based on the historical quantitative metrics, they're going to spend time where they're being measured because you always get the behavior you measure. So that's, that, that's problem, problem number one. 
Um, problem number two, and, and you know, shameful plug alert, because this is from my, my most recent book, I Engage. What we've learned, um, Peter, often engagement is driven by what happens at home. So if I'm managing five people, but I have uh, three little kids that I'm dropping off in the morning, picking up after work, uh, and I'm dealing with you know life pressures that are exhausting, or I have elder care, and you know my mother-in-law has just moved in, and and she's suffering from Alzheimer's, and uh, stressing out my spouse, uh, or there's an illness in the family, um, you know all of these things play into engagement. So are you, are you sensitive as an employer that you're managing this holistic look at the employee? Because the latest research we now have that Gallup's, Gallup's engagement studies don't really change. And, and I think it's because the vast majority of work out there on engagement is on how to engage the employee without factoring in that every employee tends to be a person and people are complicated. We have ebbs and flows of engagement that often are driven by what happens at home, and we're not really addressing that other half. I and I 100% see that in my burnout prevention work. Whereas that this period of prolonged work overload, season after season, is a harvest season. I mean that that's a major contributor. Work frustrations related to culture and metrics and different incentives. Um, but then the third component is personal frustration. It's missing out. It's missing out on life. It's, it's missing out on relationships. It's missing out on hobbies. It's, it's, it's that whole person. And even if things you know, are well in other areas, that, that component of missing out and having that work related is a driver of disengagement as it relates to sort of burning out. I shared a new study this uh, week um, during a talk I gave. Um, also came from Gallup because Gallup continues to be the granddaddy of um, the researchers bringing, I think, some earth shattering data to us. 91% of people who changed jobs over the past year cited work-life balance as the reason. Think of that. 91% of employees who quit cited work-life balance as one of the reasons. Uh, and I would anecdotal, it, most of the people who come to me, now maybe they self-select when they come to me and talk to me, yeah. but I, I would say the vast majority of high achieving leaders that no one would know, they talk about work-life balance, work-life integration, and how something is missing. And they don't know that they can continue <clears throat> five years, 10 years, 15 years. So it, it is a major issue. But so transition, because I want to be respectful of your time too, and I want to be able to talk about the, the HR summit. And, um, but in order to even consider, we need to do more and be more effective with employee engagement. It seems like it's, it's a leadership needs to change their mindset. We need to change metrics and we need to change measuring the, you know, measurement as the incentive. Yep. Yep. And, you know, leaders need to understand that it's a, um, it's not a program. Like it doesn't start stop, right? Just, you know, just like quality is not a program. So it has to be relevant in good times and in bad times. You know, the good thing about people in this industry, Peter, is they're really smart, right? I, I, I've, I've often asked myself, you know, why did I stay in one industry for a 30-year HR career? Um, you know, and as I reflect back at a more senior um, part of my life, I now reflect back and, and say, well, number one, um, 
people that work in the AEC industry are the nicest people I've ever met in my life. They just are. You know? I would agree. They are just the nicest people. Um, in fact, that's why the rates uh, tend to be low, right? Because we're all terrified to, you know, change our rates um, because we'd rather do great work for a lousy price than they have to go back and ask our clients to pay more. We work with some great people. Um, so if you, if you think about that, right, when you work with great, great people, um, then engagement should be easy, right? Well, the second thing that happens in this industry is people are left brain cerebral. They're very, very bright. It's another reason why I, I, I stayed in this industry, right? You're intellectually challenged all the time. You're working with the smartest of the smart. And because of that, Peter, I continue to be very hopeful that the left brain CEO, COO, president, CFO, it's not intuitive, but they're so bright, they understand it when you make the business case. I've never had anyone read louder than words my first book and say, you know, this is wrong. You know, it's pragmatic, it's practical. Uh, it, you know, people who are cerebral, they get it, they understand it. Uh, it's just not intuitive. It's just not their default. So I think it's, it's, it's your responsibility, my responsibility, people that work in this industry on the people side of things, trying to, trying to help them uh, understand how to do it, how to modify, how to flex, how to change in a way that they intellectually understand it. Because when you make that business case, they all get it. I, I love the way you phrase that. And I, I sort of approach it a very similar way where, you know, we as an industry and as a leadership team, we need to be effective in four critical elements, projects, profits, people, and purpose. And there's elements where on the project side, we know what makes the case. We, we on, To be more profitable, we know that, that that's, we've invested in that for decades now. But on the people side, we need to do more. And on the purpose side, you know, make work have meaning and purpose. We have to do a little bit more. And that's some big investments today, but to sort of break it up into it's a different bucket, but it's related to sort of the projects and the profits piece. So it's, it's, I, I think people are getting it. Okay. I need to invest in people, but how do I do that? So that's a key thing. So that sort of translates into the ACHR summit. So you've been doing this for 10 years now, uh, founded it and moving I, just over the 10 years. How have you seen, the HR industry change? I mean, have you adapted the model or the, the content that you share um, from say 10 years ago to today? Yeah. It, um, you know, I have seen a shift, uh, you know, 10, 11 years ago, uh, it was, you know, when we would request people to speak, we would have a lot of um, presentations geared towards compensation and benefits. And now what we generally will see, and our agenda reflects this, a big shift towards culture. Um, so you see the HR um, function moving from your traditional HR things, right? You know, we have to make sure people have benefits, they get paid, um, and we don't screw a payroll to a um, more of a holistic look at human resources helping to be the caretaker of the organizational culture. So I've, I've, I've seen that be a dramatic shift over the past uh, 10 years. Um, I guess we could say 
past 11 years, because in Denver, it'll be the 11th annual summit, um, that we've seen it kind of uh, be much more um, of this holistic look at, you know, what's the purpose, uh, linking it with our core values and mission statement, and how do we make it, um, you know, all, all interconnected. So we have to have paid programs, but the paid programs should be validating uh, the type of organization we want to be, right? So they should be values-based. It shouldn't just be quantitative-based. Like what are the qualitative, um, you know, organizational values that we want to support? Uh, benefits, we've seen benefits shift quite a bit. So yeah, we, we, we still see people wanting to talk about benefits, but it's more of a shift towards wellness now. Um, you know, it's, it's like the old, you know, safety culture, right? Safety has migrated now towards uh, a push towards not just safety when you get hurt, but how do we prevent? Um, so we've seen it kind of, I, I would say, uh, move up the food chain uh, to a more holistic view of, um, you know, talent, um, talent management, really, from talent acquisition uh, to talent uh, development to talent uh, retention to talent deployment. And have you seen the HR professional move up the food chain, if you will, over the last decade? Um, I have, but there is a definite um, correlation between company size. You know, one of the things that always fascinated me, Peter, that if you're a hundred person company, you have a pretty sophisticated chief financial officer. In fact, I would argue you, the financial, the chief financial officer or a hundred person company is not too uh, different in qualifications than the CFO at uh, one of the ENR top 10. However, when you look at smaller HR functions and smaller organizations, you know, I call it the Aunt Betty syndrome, that you're small, so you bring in Aunt Betty to, you know, make sure that they're the link with your payroll provider, and you get a benefit broker, so they're the link with your benefit broker, and they also manage the receptionist. So you don't really have a high degree of sophistication in the function like you do on the financial side. And it's fascinating to me. Um, but when you get to a uh, you know, 500 person company, then you're dealing with a chief HR officer that is every bit as qualified as a chief HR officer of a firm that might be 5,000 people. So one of the things that I would like to see in the function, and I talk about this at the summit, the need for smaller AEC firms to have professionally led HR um, stewards. Um, no different than how you would have a uh, CPA as your CFO or someone who is a highly talented, sophisticated financial wizard. Um, take that same model on the people side because it's, it's, it's more important than these smaller firms, I think. Um, um, invest in. How, how have you seen the ad ad adoption of that idea, particularly for some of the smaller firms? That like, well, it, it's, a, it's a good idea. I get it. I just don't know what to do or a little skeptical of, well, yeah, I'm, sh I'm not sure that's for me. Well, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it takes time, right? Because, you know, companies have to invest in that and that's an investment, right? So you're back to, 
you know, closing out the financials every month. That's something you must do. Uh, something you should do would be the people stuff, right? Um, so again, it's, you know, having the financial um, means to be able to upgrade the function. But I've seen it change. Uh, you know, I've even seen it change with the attendees at the HR summit. You know, we, we get a very sophisticated uh, HR professional now. And, and even when you see uh, two or three people coming from the same firm, so the HR director will bring their, you know, talent acquisition person. And we're seeing a much more professional uh, group, uh, especially, you know, the junior HR professionals that are coming in uh, seem to be way better educated on the human resources side than I was when I was 25, right? You know, when I was 25, anyone who was in HR, we stumbled into HR, you know, the former school teacher. Where today you're seeing human resources being, um, you know, a, a degree that people are coming in with degrees and certifications in human resources, which we didn't see in the mid-1980s. Right. And, I, and I, I met CEOs and principals at the conference this, this past year in Nashville, too. So obviously, from a leadership perspective, going to support HR or to understand some of those, those applications of how to sort of bring HR into a new level. Yeah, Peter, for those who um, might be listening to this podcast at some point, uh, we have over 30% of the attendees that are presidents, CEOs, principals, CFOs. Um, and they're... The greatest partnership to me is when uh, the HR person comes with their CEO, because now the HR person has a champion and every single operational person, when they come, they'll come back and say, hey, you know, I, I went to some of the industry conferences and I got more out of this one than I did the industry conferences. So, you know, hopefully we can continue to see the partners come with their HR colleagues. If, if an HR professional doesn't have a champion right now, what, what one or two pieces of advice do you, would you give them to sort of to try to develop a champion? Yeah, um, you know, give them, give them readings. You know, my first book, Loud on the Words, I, I always tell folks it's a great um, ally because it was written in this industry. It was written by someone who, you know, made a business case and it's a pretty easy read. Uh, find someone in the leadership team who does get it because there will be someone. Um, so try to get that person to be your partner and in influence uh, to try to help use metrics, you know, again, you know, make the business case, uh, bring, bring some of the metrics uh, that are the people metrics that um, the person who may not yet understand uh, to get them uh, more on board. What, what if I was a leader who wanted to, elevate my role, my HR manager or director to be more of a business partner? If, if I wanted to encourage that, is there a process to encourage it? Or do I really need to just, there's a certain innate um, understanding that has to happen. Can, can you learn those skills or, or do you really have to find someone who sort of has that business outlook? Yeah, I think you can learn the skills, um, you know, but they, you know, they have to have a, a business um, sense, um, not just a people sense. You know, some of the Aunt Bettys that end up with the smaller firms, you know, they think that their job is to take care of the employees. So they almost become employee advocates um, at, at risk of alienating the operation folks because they're seen as not really understanding, um, you know, the business side, right? 
So does your HR person understand why running training from eight to 12 on a Tuesday might impact profitability? Do they get that? Do they understand it? Or are they, are they arguing with, you know, the operation folks uh, who just don't get it. Right. So having that blend of business, uh, you know, business acumen with uh, people centricity um, is, is something that I think HR needs to have to be successful in this business. All right. Well, well, great. Well, as we wrap up, um, I wanted to give you a chance. Anything else you'd like to share with firm leaders and, and maybe details about the upcoming HR Summit in Denver? Yeah, um, the summit um, will be April 15th, 16th, and 17th. That We've grown every year since we started. Um, it is a summit that uh, all of the HR um, breakout sessions are run by HR practitioners. Uh, um, so it is very much a practitioner-led conference. Um, it is a wonderful, um, um, a wonderful opportunity to bring your HR person with you. Um, so come as a, as a partnership. And the last thing I'll leave uh, folks with is, um, my website, employeeengagement.com has a resources section, uh, that is, uh, just a wonderful inventory of articles and videos and case studies. Um, so you can learn so much about engagement, um, uh, without, costing you a nickel. Um, so we have a free resources section and I encourage uh, all your listeners to um, visit employeeengagement.com, kind of navigate the various articles and the reference points like Gallup's studies, uh, uh, Deloitte and other things that we archive. We are, we are the number one most visited site on engagement in the world. And I encourage your listeners to leverage uh, it as a resource site uh, to help you. Great. And is that the best way to get in touch with you if people wanted to learn more about yeah, the, the group um, and what you're doing? BobKelleher.com will get you there. Uh, and certainly EmployeeEngagement.com will get you there as well. Great. And we'll put those links in the show notes. Well, Bob, I am so thankful that you joined us today on the podcast to share you know, all of your insights as relates to employee engagement and the evolution of HR and how we can be more effective and um, you know, so thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Peter. And thank you for all that I know that you're doing out there as well. You also came, um, similar to myself, came as a full-time uh, practitioner in the AEC space. And uh, you've built hours, you've booked work, uh, you get it, uh, but you're doing some great work yourself, uh, in particular on helping people minimize staff burnout, which is such a huge issue facing the AEC industry today. So keep up your great work. All right. Thank you. Take care. Okay, Peter. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so, and please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. It also helps get the word out so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. So thank you. 
Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.